Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to Freedom of Species. Freedom of Species is dedicated to raising awareness about non-human animals. I'm Kate Elliott. Today on the program, ahead of the World Day for the End of Speciesism that will be held next Saturday, so that's Saturday the 26th, we take a closer look at speciesism, discrimination based on species. It's a term that was first coined by psychologist and animal rights advocate Dr. Richard Ryder back in 1970. March for the end of speciesism, march for the end of speciesism. The time has come for emancipation, we want animal liberation. March for the end of speciesism. 1970, I coined the term speciesism to describe the prejudice against the other species and to draw the analogy with other prejudices like racism and sexism. The point I was trying to make was that we're all related, all species are related biologically and through evolution. And instead of treating the other species like um, objects, we should be treating them as our evolutionary cousins, as our kindred. We should stop exploiting them in laboratories, in factory farms, in the wild and elsewhere. I felt that speciesism was an unintelligent, out-of-date sort of prejudice. Since Charles Darwin came along and told us that we're all animals and we're all related through evolution, we haven't really drawn the proper moral conclusions from that. It's like it's taken a hundred years or more for the penny to drop. We're really all in the same boat, morally speaking. Darwin himself said this. Darwin worried about the way in which the human animal treated the other animals as our slaves. And indeed there is a moral similarity between speciesism and slavery. The important thing about the other species of animal is that they can suffer pain. And there's growing scientific evidence that other animals do suffer pain. They have similar nervous systems to ourselves. They have similar biochemicals in the brain associated with the experience of pain in ourselves. So we can be fairly sure that they do experience pain and distress in the same sort of way that we do, hundreds of other species of animals. And I'm saying that morally it's important that X amount of pain in a dog or an elephant or a cat, matters as much as X amount of pain in human beings. So it doesn't matter what species you're from, any more than it matters what race or gender you're from, the pain is the same. So we shall all have the same sort of respect, morally speaking. Some people argue that um, because human beings allegedly are more intelligent or more religious, or more independent or autonomous than some of the other species, that therefore this gives us some moral superiority. 
Well, I argue that all these alleged differences, which are probably exaggerated anyway, all these alleged differences are morally irrelevant. They aren't relevant to the moral situation at all. The important thing is that we all suffer pain. Jeremy Bentham said this, the famous British philosopher, in 1789, when he said it, the question is not, can they reason, nor can they talk, but can they suffer? Suffering is really the important criterion for morality, not somebody's intelligence. I mean, we don't give special extra rights to professors because they're intelligent, or to priests because they're very religious. We wouldn't want that to happen within our own society. So why do we do it across the species barrier, allegedly giving us uh, more moral privileges, more rights than the other species, merely because we seem to be a bit more intelligent? It doesn't make sense. Almost 50 years on from Dr Richard Ryder's clear explanation of speciesism, there seems to be little awareness or acceptance of this form of discrimination. Discrimination purely on the basis of species is so commonplace, so omnipresent in our society that we appear blind to it, or at least blinkered. The World Day for the End of Speciesism, an international event, hopes to change all this, with events being held in over 40 cities in 10 countries, aimed at bringing attention to the growing anti-speciesist movement. People coming together who believe animals have their own inherent interests and these interests should not be disregarded purely because of their species status. Dr Ash Narati is a clinical neuropsychologist who specialises in brain function and how it impacts on our behaviour. It's an interesting perspective when you apply it to species as thinking and it's something that she'll be sharing when she speaks at the Melbourne March for the End of Speciesism next Saturday. I started off by asking her how she first came across the concept of speciesism. And I came across speciesism about 10 years ago, um, which is when I first watched a documentary called Earthlings, which is about how animals are treated in a number of different industries. And uh, at the time, I didn't really link it I didn't put a name to it as speciesism but it really made me evaluate um, the way that we treat non-human animals and um, and especially con contrasting say farm animals with how we treat companion animals like dogs and cats and as the years have gone on and I've become more aware of it um, the concept of speciesism has just uh, become, I suppose, a bigger one for me, a bigger issue and, and one that I try and share um, with others and raise awareness around. Working at a level of exposing specious thinking does feel like you're striking at the root cause of animal suffering. But I guess unlike other discriminations like racism, sexism, many people seem to accept discrimination against species. In fact, it's the norm. This... Um, this would seem to be the first challenge for advocating against speciesism. Yeah, I, I think becoming aware of of what we're doing is part of the challenge. And even, um, I mean, there's multiple things there, isn't it? Because so much of what actually happens to animals is shielded from public knowledge. I mean, things happen um, behind closed doors when it comes to the way that animals are treated for food or fashion or cosmetics testing or medical testing or entertainment even, 
Um, and so educating ourselves is a big part of it and also um, be- becoming, and part of that is becoming aware of just uh, how pervasive it is and how, how much, how widespread it is across so many aspects of our lives. So another term that comes up often alongside speciesism is animal quality and they both seem equally misunderstood. Yeah, and I think that the two are are linked because speciesism is about discriminating against individuals, non-human animals on the basis of their species and animal equality is really about um, the opposite of that, which which is anti-speciesism. And I think where sometimes people can get confused is is about what that actually um, what that actually means because when we talk about animal rights, we're talking about the right to life, the right to safety, the right for animals to be in their families um, as their birthright, the right for animals to not be harmed and tortured and discriminated against. Um, and I think sometimes people think that it goes further into like, okay, animals, should they have the right to vote and should animals be allowed to attend school and, and university? And I don't think that's that's what it's about. It's it's more about the the right to exist and, and the right to life. And I like to compare speciesism with uh, or animal rights with um, children's rights because children's rights, um, it, it's quite similar in that children are a very vulnerable um, group in our society, just as animals are a vulnerable, vulnerable group, and as adult humans, we have an advantage of um, of our intelligence, I suppose, our our forward thinking skills, our memory, um, compared to animals, and that puts us in a position of dominance. But it doesn't need to be dominance in terms of discrimination. It it can also be um, dominance in terms of protection. So just like the adults are charged with taking care of young vulnerable children I think that we also need to be charged with taking care of um, of vulnerable non-human animals. What you're talking about is challenging um, what would seem like a societal belief that animals are there for us to use. You are a neuropsychologist so can you talk a little bit about how our brain works as far as beliefs are concerned and also habits? Sure. Our um, beliefs and habits are really tied to one another and um, our beliefs really drive our habits. So the beliefs are what we think and our habits are what we do. And with something like speciesism, it's fed to us right from an early age and it's it's from our parents, it's from our teachers and it's from society at large. Um, and, you know, we often do see instances where young children will question, you know, why why am it, why am I eating this? Where did this, you know, leg of chicken come from? And and link, you know, we can see children trying to make the connections between the food that they eat, um, or even the animals that they might see performing, and um, and you know they start to put it put things together, but we often shut down the natural curiosity that children have, and and we give them justifications and reasons why speciesism is okay and a lot of that is because of of our beliefs or at least main mainstream society's beliefs about animals so essentially it gets passed down through generations and it's reinforced at every turn so how could how could we help but to adopt speciesist beliefs when they're coming at us from all angles and it's very rare that someone will actually stand up and challenge 
um, challenge some of these beliefs. And so it, that feeds into our habits. So when we stop questioning our use of animals, um, when we stop tr- making the links between the animals we see and love and what's on our plate, then it becomes very easy to fall into the habit of, okay, well, I'll just continue to go to the zoo because that's where everybody goes or I'll, I'll continue to um, do horse carriage rides because, oh, I see everybody else is doing it. Um, and that's really where a lot of the speciesist attitudes in society really stem from a young age and how they've just been reinforced. And when things are reinforced long enough, they become beliefs and um, the actions that are reinforced for long enough become habits. So we get rewarded for acting in speciesist ways um, and it's very rare that we would ever question it until um, a radio show such as this opens the door to it. So can you give us some practical advice about how do we deconstruct these beliefs or at least challenge them and make conscious choices about how we want to engage in the world, in particular taking into um, consideration the interests of animals? Yeah, there's a number of steps here and, and they're all quite straightforward. Um, it is easier said than done though. Um, a lot of it is a willingness to challenge our own thinking because it's easier to operate from habit than um, to to do something different to what we've always done. So the first one is to become aware of how speciesism manifests in our lives. So whether it's what we eat or the cosmetics we use or the um, forms of entertainment in which we partake. So that awareness um, really is key. And when it comes to changing our beliefs, I think education goes a long way um, and opening up our minds to other perspectives. And, and so speaking with animal rights activists or reading blogs or going onto Facebook and reading um, reading things or watching videos and opening up our minds as to, okay, why do other people um, who are anti-speciesist, why do they believe what they believe? And I think educating ourselves and getting informed um, and becoming aware of the speciesism in our own lives is really important. But then that's just the starting point because then we actually move on to, okay, if we know that we're engaging in in certain habits that are discriminatory towards animals, then it becomes how can we change those habits? And honestly, habit change is something that happens with time and consistency. And it's um, it's something that we make a deliberate and conscious effort to change. And there's a number of what a number of ways that we can make habit change easier um, for ourselves and some of those I'll be touching on um, I'll be touching on next week at the rally um, so maybe that's just a teaser for, for the for the rally itself but essentially um, those would be the the three main steps education awareness and then conscious habit change clinical neuropsychologist Dr Ash Narati discussing how speciesism, although a dominant belief in our society, can be consciously challenged. Indeed, it needs to be if we are to change our attitudes and our behaviour. As Dr Narati said, it's a teaser. If you'd like to hear more, you'll need to attend the march next Saturday in Melbourne. She will be speaking at the march. Um, All the details are coming up later in the show when we talk to one of the March organisers, Trevor Whedon. So stay tuned for that. 
Now we've got another Australian doctor also interested in how our mind works in relation to speciesism. It's Dr Brock Bastian. He is a social psychologist who spoke at the 2014 Voiceless Seminar series, Rethinking Speciesism. He discussed the meat paradox. How can we love some animals and eat others? And he drew from his own research. Uh, Particularly fascinating if you do currently eat animals. So this is an excerpt from that talk. So what I want to talk about is really how do people resolve this paradox, the fact that they do care about animal suffering. We all do care about animal suffering, but really a vast majority of people also eat meat. And I think that the one thing that's very critical in this whole sort of problem is that to resolve the paradox, we need to downplay the mental lives of animals. And this is because... Thinking, thinking of animals as thinking beings, as, as feeling beings, makes them morally relevant. We don't care about rocks because they don't think and they don't feel. We do care about puppies and babies because they do think and they do feel. But, of course, we can change our perceptions subtly to try and suit our behaviour in some situations. And the fact is that we enjoy eating meat, but we don't like eating minds. And we've done some research on this, and you can see here that we've got a, a list of animals, and we ask people to rate these animals on their edibility and also on how much mind they possess. And you can see there's a fairly good negative relationship there between the animals that are seen as edible and and how much mind they have. So we have fish and and crabs and chickens over there, and even the cow and sheep and goat, relatively less mind and definitely more edible than, say, your dog, your gorilla, your monkey, dolphin or horse. And you may say, well, that's all very fine and well. We've made a, a good rational choice. We've decided to only eat the animals that don't have any minds. That's a rational basis for our choice here. But I would suggest that actually it's far more motivated than that. We change our perception of animals depending on whether we eat them. And let me convince you a little bit more. We also brought some people into the lab, and we, both vegetarians and meat eaters, and we we showed them this picture of a cow, and we either told them this is a cow standing in a paddock or this is a cow standing in a paddock and it's going to be killed and slaughtered for meat production. So these are two different groups. Then both groups did a mind attribution task here. So basically what they did was rated the extent to which the cow had these different mental capacities, how much it could feel pleasure, fear, rage, joy, happiness, how much it could desire or wish or plan for things, how much pain, hunger it could experience, whether it could taste, see and hear, choose, think, intend, imagine and reason. So this is really how we, you know, how much mind would you attribute to this cow? What we found was that vegetarians were far more likely to attribute mind to a cow overall than meat eaters. But interestingly also, they weren't very sensitive to our manipulation. It didn't matter whether the cow was going to be used for meat for a vegetarian, but for meat eaters, they subtly downplayed the mental states of a cow when they thought about it as food, again, because perhaps they feel in some sense connected to that use of a cow. So it seems that denying mind to animals is a good way to sort of help us to eat meat, and maybe in an untroubled kind of way. It reduces our negative feelings, our negative emotions around eating meat. 3CR, radio that's independent, progressive and making a difference. So the meat paradox is really made up of these different elements and I guess it highlights that our perceptions of animals are are both motivated and also quite flexible. We change our perceptions of animals to fit in with our behaviour and to help us to, I guess, overcome this psychological conflict which is that we like to eat meat, but we also like to care for animals. And in this sense, our relationship with animals is fairly characterised as full of conflict and inconsistency, not only 
between choosing which animals we're going to eat, but also in how we think about the animals that we do eat. And the fact is that it seems we engage in a range of mental backflips that allow us to maintain our apparent ambivalence toward animals and our use of them for food. So why a psychology of meat-eating? What's the importance of, of you know, even looking at these sorts of questions? Well, I think the first thing is it makes us think. It makes us think about what we do and what we have to do if we do eat meat. We have to sort of take on board those psychological backflips. And it highlights, in that sense, the moral cost, not only for animals, but also for us. There's a moral cost for animals, but there's also a moral cost for us. We have to shape our moral worlds and our moral perceptions in ways which allow us to engage in a behaviour which, if you scratch the sur surface of it, most people are kind of uncomfortable about it. And this is also critical because people are increasingly consuming meat. What was once a delicacy has become a staple food. So meat consumption is definitely on the rise. And now, rather than being something on the side of our plate, it's the main, it's the main, main course. And this increased consumption of meat is also associated with a corresponding increase in animal harm. The more that we eat meat, the more we need factory farms to be able to produce masses and masses of animals and, and meat, etc. We can't go and hunt animals anymore. This is not how we produce meat. We now raise them, grow them and kill them in factory environments. And, of course, this really means that the more meat we eat, the more harm is perpetrated. And I'll also argue that, really, the meat paradox is getting stronger... So our we are eating more meat. People are eating more and more meat. And yet, at the same time, we're actually more and more sensitive to the rights and needs of animals. The fact is, you guys would not be sitting here 100 years ago. This would not be an event uh, you know, that many years ago. We weren't sensitive to animals' needs and rights in the same way that we are today. So this, this meat paradox is actually becoming stronger. It's starting to become a, a bigger conflict. And, of course... This has a number of ramifications. In some ways, it means that you know, we have to actually further and further change our perceptions of animals if we're going to continue to eat meat. In other ways, it perhaps suggests that people are going to give up that behaviour because the, the conflict is becoming too great. That was Dr Brock Bastian, again a teaser for the entire talk. Uh, you can go to Voiceless Animal Protection Institute's YouTube channel along with the other presenters that spoke at the seminar. So these include Dr Jonathan Crow, and he spoke on animal welfare and moral avoidance, and Dr Jed Goodfellow. Uh, his topic was speciesism and the law, how the legal system entrenches animal discrimination. March for the end of speciesism March for the end of speciesism The time has come for emancipation We want animal liberation March for the end of speciesism March for the end of speciesism Give us cause for celebration We want animal liberation Humans are not superior to our fellow earthlings but even if we were superior, we have the right to use animals for anything. Animals have feelings just like we do. Animals feel pain just like we do. Let's be kind to animals everywhere. No more apathy, we need to care. 
March for the end of speciesism. March for the end of speciesism. The time has come for emancipation. We want animal liberation. March for the end of speciesism. March for the end of speciesism. Give us cause for celebration. We want animal liberation. Even if you're not a big fan of rules, perhaps you appreciate the golden rule. Treat others as you'd like to be treated. Treat others as you'd like to be treated. You wouldn't like for somebody to kill you and throw your flesh into a pot of stew. So don't pay for animals to be killed. Animals want to live, not be grilled. March for the end of speciesism. March for the end of speciesism. The time has come for emancipation. We want animal liberation. March for the end of speciesism. March for the end of speciesism. Give us cause for celebration. We want animal liberation. There are vegan versions of meat, eggs, and dairy. They don't need to be delivered by a fairy. You can find them in your grocery store. They're delicious. Eat them and go get more. I love being vegan. I feel very healthy. I like living in such a way that I'm not supporting cruelty. Be kind to animals on land and in the sea. Embrace unity and equality. March for the end of speciesism. March for the end of speciesism. The time has come for emancipation. We want animal liberation. March for the end of speciesism. March for the end of speciesism. Give us cause for celebration. We want animal liberation. March for the end of speciesism. March for the end of speciesism. The time has come for emancipation. We want animal liberation. March for the end of speciesism. March for the end of speciesism. Give us cause for celebration. We want animal liberation. That was a tune tailored for today's program. That is because John Sarkers was commissioned by the Toronto March for the End of Speciesism a year or so ago to write that song. Um, And fortunately, we can include it in today's program, hopefully in the podcast as well, just waiting for permission. Um, And keeping with the international feel and specifically Toronto, Paul York is an academic and also grassroots activist. Although he is now based in the United States, he was in Toronto and that's where he set up the Toronto Cow Save Group as well as a animal rights academy that held weekly lecture series. This is where I came across his presentation exploring the comparisons between racism and speciesism based on a book by Marjorie Spiegel. The book was titled The Dreaded Comparison written back in 1988. And uh, it is a dreaded comparison. It seems incredibly controversial to compare racism to, to speciesism, but there's undeniable similarities between the two forms of discrimination. Um, I will link to the presentation because I think there's over like 100 um, PowerPoint slides. It was very thorough um, I will provide a link to the presentation on our uh, Freedom of Species website, the podcast page to this show. Um, Unfortunately, today, due to time, we can only give a quick nod and pick out one or two highlights. 
Um, one of the th aspects of the PowerPoints um, presentation that I found striking was the link between discrimination and the erasure of an individual, how we need, it appears a prerequisite to oppression is to generalise a group. I asked Paul about this. And unfortunately, the quality of Paul's response is inversely proportional to the Skype connection quality. Um, so please um, bear with it. It's um, a lot of good content in there, if uh, a little bit uh, muffled. It, uh, the, the use of language and symbols and tags and so on like that uh, into, into the erasure of individuality and personhood is helps um, facilitates the instrumental use of those other sentient beings because it, 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 it erases their personhood. And there is, we all of us have, all, every human being, um, some people would contest this, but I believe that every human being has a, a conscience, has a sense of morality um, that is not just, not just socially constructed, but is um, that, that they have as, as a, by virtue of, of being rational beings. So I'm a Kantian, a rationalist, and I believe that we all have this, what Kant called this moral law within. And that, but often it's dormant, and it's not activated. And so we need to, um, what will happen is that when somebody witnesses an act of inhumanity towards another human being, that conscience, uh, that moral law within, is sometimes awakened. And so... We there's an attempt to suppress it uh, within the, so that creates cognitive dissonance and, and dissonant uh, uh, belief systems within the human being. So they there's the the famous um, poster "Why love one and eat the other." Um, so so why why love a, a dog and eat a uh, eat a pig, for example? Um, human beings have are creatures that have learned how to um, bring together uh, dissonant belief systems, belief systems that, that don't work together, and to somehow balance them, but it creates a, it, there's a psychological toll on that, and so uh, it goes along with that. So animal rights activism is useful for helping people find their conscience, find the, the uh, to break out of that cognitive dissonance and to see, kind of see the world a little more clearly, uh, to see other beings as persons, which they are, um, and not just as members of a species uh, who, whom we can do. So there's another interesting part to this, which is the human beings um, are, if they see the suffering of an individual, there's, uh, there's a lot more empathy that's created in them than if they see, um, if they just hear about a statistic of suffering or they see the individuals as part of a group. So there's just something in, in human psychology that, 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 is, that, that is peculiar in that sense. And so uh, a lot of times when we're trying to awaken the conscience of others to the suffering of, of animals, um, you know, it's more helpful to actually present this suffering of an individual, say, so that's why pig save is useful, because it showed the suffering of the uh, pigs on individual pigs in a, in, a, in a live transport truck 
rather than just presenting the public with uh, statistics, which which is, you know, we, we don't, we're psychically numb to. Um, we don't really, it doesn't move us when we hear a number or we see uh, an individual as part of a group, but when we see the individual themselves, we look into their eyes, that kind of can be very moving. So, and language plays a huge part of this. Uh, if we, uh, human slavery was justified for a long time through the use of language um, uh, to, to reduce and instrumentalize others, and, and we, we do exactly the same thing to animals when we talk about meat, uh, when we talk about, um, uh, we use a lot of euphemisms for animal parts and for animals themselves. And we also, there's another interesting aspect of this that Spiegel points out, which is how we, we reduce other human beings by calling them animals. We insult a human being by referring to them as an animal. And, um, uh, you know, you can think of a lot of examples like uh, uh, pig, dog, bitch, and so on. So there's, that's actually an example of uh, both speciesism um, and, in some cases, racism. So you had the Nazis referring to Jews as vermin, or, um, and, uh, and there was a, in, during um, the slavery in, in the antebellum South and in the U.S., there was a lot of reference to, to black people uh, through animal names. And so, it, so it's interesting how speciesism and racism are used in tandem to instrumentalize and reduce others. And I think even recently, um, Syrian refugees have been, there was cartoons of them being like rats crossing over the border. So it, it's still going on today. Oh, um, yeah. It, 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 there's, there's something, it's interesting to observe that and to be aware of it. And uh, uh, we, we, I think our society as a whole needs more of a more what we could call a moral education um, regarding these issues, because there's a lot of things that are going on in the world. Uh, and if we just actually studied the history of um, our own history, we would understand these issues a lot uh, with a lot more clarity. Yeah. There was a phrase that you used in the slideshow that I'm not quite sure if I understand, so it'd be great if you could explain it. It's the oppression of the oppressor. Yeah, it's actually, that's a phrase from uh, Gandhian or nonviolence philosophy. So that concept, the oppression of the oppressor, is actually refers to the way in which uh, in an, in an, oppress, an impressive uh, uh, relationship, um, a hierarchical relationship there, the, uh, the, the master, the person in the master position or the oppressor position is actually harming themselves um, psychologically. They're... They're actually the by reducing others. They're actually reducing themselves to uh, within that relationship um, by making it a power relationship. They're 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 blocking themselves off from the possibility of um, you know what Thomas Berry calls a communion of subjects, which is what we all need on a more on a very basic level. We need to we need he said to enter into a communion of subjects rather than see the universe and ourselves as part of a, as a collection of objects. So by, and I think uh, it was Pope John Paul II said that he defined hell psychologically as separation from others. So there's a sense in which by uh, reducing others instrumentally to 
to uh, meet uh, to the role of means to an end, we we kind of harm ourselves as well. Um, and um, uh, by harming animals, we're actually cutting ourselves off. So you want to think about it back to I've mentioned before. We're all we're none of us are born species. We learn it. Uh, a child when they come into the world, a lot of them, uh, you know, there's the, the famous thought experiment, if you put a child, uh, a bunny rabbit and an apple in front of a child, which one will he play with and which will he eat, or, or she eat or she play with. And the point here is that we are born with a love for animals. Um, it's reflected in our childhood drawings. And so we're part of this communion of subjects when we're born um, and we're very young, and then we learn to, to separate ourselves from that. It actually causes a lot of uh, uh, psychological harm to be separate from, you know, it's interesting as well, when you look at uh, a child learns how to love their pet, a, a dog or a cat, but then learns how to, um, uh, you know, on a farm, for example, they love their their pet cow, but then the cow is sent off to slaughter, and they learn uh, as a young teenager to separate themselves, to harden themselves emotionally. Well, that process, which is very harmful to a human being, is it's it's like a breaking your heart, and it's actually harmful. It's harmful to the young that young adult. And uh, if you ever see the film um, uh, Peaceable Kingdom, it shows it, it discusses this how children that are brought up in a farming situation are actually being harmed because they love this animal who is then taken off the slaughter. Academic and activist Paul York. As I said, I'll link to Paul's presentation on the comparison of racism and speciesism from the Freedom of Species website uh, on the podcast page to this show. Coming up after these community announcements, have your pen and paper ready because I'm going to be speaking to one of the organisers of the Melbourne March for the End of Speciesism that's coming up next Saturday, Trevor Whedon. My name is Selva Coolidge-Shelvin and I am fighting for my life. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to have to flee your own country, spend days or weeks in a leaky boat on dangerous rolling seas and then arrive in a new country where you are terrorised even more? Well, that's the life confronting millions of people in this world who have no choice but to seek asylum. All these people want is a fair go, but here in Australia, our government in our name treats these desperate people with cruelty and inhumanity. Here at 3CR, we aim to give these people a voice, a chance to speak out and let you know that they are just like us, people with hopes and aspirations, people who deserve to be treated as we would expect to be treated if we found ourselves in this position. Refugee Radio is the voice of refugees. 10am every Sunday at 3CR 855 on the AM dial. So say I'm not a worthless human being Cause no one needs a worthless human being My family need a worthwhile human being In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. 
years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. You can get your copy of 3CR's book for $49.50 at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. You're tuned to 3CR, Community Radio's animal advocacy program, Freedom of Species. Today we are exploring speciesism, the ism that sits alongside all the other discrimination isms, sexism, racism, ableism, just to name a few. As we've heard so far on the show, speciesism is the discrimination on the basis of one's species. I'd now like to welcome to the show Trevor Whedon. He's on the organising team for the Melbourne March for the End of Speciesism, coming up next Saturday on the 26th of August, meeting in Melbourne CBD, the Treasury Gardens, at 11am. Welcome, Trevor. Hi, how are you going? Good to have you on the show. Can you give us an overview of the event? Yes, yeah, so we're, as you mentioned, we're going to be meeting people at 11am uh, on Saturday the 26th at the Treasury Gardens. Uh, we're going to be... Uh, just getting everyone ready, organised. We might be doing um, a, a couple of things. I will say we're, we're going to be keeping a little bit, not secret as such, but we want to, we want a few surprises for the day. So I can't go into too much detail about them, but we'll, we'll be doing uh, something at the start at Treasury Gardens. Um, and then we're going to have people, well, the whole group, we'll march off together towards the Parliament steps. Uh, we'll have a few speakers there. And then we'll march down Burke Street from Parliament Steps right through to Burke Street Mall. And then there'll be a couple more speakers um, as well as some other surprises. And, and that should be the end to a really good day. Can you reveal who the speakers will be or is that still under wraps? Yes. So we've got five speakers in total. Uh, there will be Belinda Morris. She's the founder of Animal Activism Victoria and she's been involved with quite a few organisations um, in her career in, in Melbourne. Uh, there's also Sally Hunter. She's an animal and human rights activist. Uh, she focuses both on animal rights and also mostly on refugee rights. Um, and there's a very interesting crossover that she has with those. Um, there's also Ash Nayate, uh, who's a neuropsychologist. She's been involved uh, with the community and also doing some Q&A sessions for some of the screenings of What the Health and other health-related um, vegan and animal rights advocacy issues. Uh, we've also got Pam Ahern from Edgar's Mission, of course, and um, Lizzie from Melbourne Chicken Save, she'll also be speaking to. What a lineup! Um, and you're not alone because this is actually an international event. There's um, marches going on all around the world, USA, France, UK, Canada, Germany, and I believe in Geneva they're having three days of lectures about speciesism. Yeah, it's fantastic. All across the world, um, we're joining. It's 40 cities that are being involved this year, which is great, over 10 countries. And um, as you said, yeah, there's a mixture of conferences, lectures, protests, marches, uh, demonstrations. I know some of them are doing the human meat demonstrations, which was held in Melbourne last year, but not as part of the speciesism event. Um, but it's good to see a big range of events as well. Hopefully it helps to educate people. 
Can you tell us some more about the human meat? So it's not humane meat, it's human meat. Yeah, I think people call it both human meat and humane meat. Uh, it's the demonstration where um, animal rights activists will volunteer to lie down on makeshift um, sort of butcher butcher paper or but, butcher type um, containers, similar to what you would see in the supermarket down um, in in those sections, and they place some fake cellophane or or glad wrap style covering over the top with a sticker um so it's it's simulating what would it look like if if a if a human was being sold as a piece of meat um and they use some fake blood um to make it effect more visually effective and, and similar um and they have i know the one in melbourne last time they also had some some pretend butchers on on hand i was i was one of those so we were making sure that there was blood in the right places and people were covered and it was uh, being presented as accurately as possible as as uh, meat to be sold. And we had a lot of people doing leafleting as well, some outreach uh, volunteers speaking to the public. Um, and it was quite an effective event. We had a lot of people give us some good feedback afterwards. That was down at City Square before they started doing the construction for the new train station. Yeah, making the connection between flesh is flesh, whether it be human or another animal, I can imagine be very effective. Um, this idea of speciesism, because obviously the march is to raise awareness about what speciesism is and what anti-speciesism is as well, um, but it can be really hard to understand in practical terms. Does the march have like concrete demands of what they want to achieve by these marches apart from just highlighting um, speciesism in general? Yeah, so I guess there's a few a few goals or aims. Um, it also depends on on the audience. So, so the main audience that we're we're targeting, of course, is the general public, who are 98% approximately not vegan, um, and so that is just to bring awareness to and educate around the basic idea of speciesism that's involved with lots of their food, entertainment, fashion, um, all the sorts of products and, and services that, that are abusing or exploiting animals. Um, and then separate to that, there's also the existing vegan community um, and even some of the animal advocacy and activist community. Uh, we're hoping to also educate people in those spaces about what they can do that might, what they're currently doing that might be considered speciesist as well um, and what they can do to be a bit more inclusive or, or aware of those issues. So a typical one is the topic of fish um, and other aquatic animals. They don't often get anywhere near as much attention from animal rights activists and advocacy um, people in the space as do the typical land farmed animals. Um, even though they are killed in much larger numbers um, and the, the methods of death are arguably even more um, inhumane. Um, they, they, they go through the equivalent of drowning for a land animal by being brought to the surface. Um, it's a very painful death. There's no, no stunning, no other procedure that's done beforehand. Um, a lot of them are killed just as wastage and byproduct as well. Um, that's not even used that they're dumped straight back in the ocean when they're dead so um it's it's even though it's it, there's never a, a nice way to kill an animal that doesn't need to die um and but even within that there's, there's 
there exists that that difference between how we treat some species and others based on maybe how much we can relate to them or which ones are cute and fluffy or which ones we think deserve certain treatment. Yes, it's telling when we can only count them in quantities rather than individuals, isn't it? That's um, a very telling yeah. sign. Um, often in mainstream media, people who attend animal issue marches sort of um, marginalise as like animal activists as though we're, you know, they're not part of the community. But when you go to these marches or events... It's a cross-section of community who attends. So who are you hoping will attend the march? Yeah, you're very correct. There's a big stereotype and stigma, I guess, around both vegans and animal rights activists. Uh, we, are, we are definitely keeping that front of mind and trying to break down some of those myths. Um, we're hoping everyone can attend. It'll be a family-friendly event. There's going to be no... It's, it's de definitely... Um, a non-violent action, which is going to be a peaceful demonstration, peaceful march. Um, we won't even be shouting demands or protests. It's, it's purely going to be an educational and awareness-raising day. Um, and, yeah, everyone's welcome. Last, the last similar march to this would have been the march to close all slaughterhouses uh, earlier in the year, and we had about six to 700 people turn up to that one. So we're, we're hoping to get a similar amount, hopefully more, and um, I say it should be a cross-section of lots of different people, both vegans, non-vegans, people who are interested, some people who are activists, um, and just see if we can... Yeah, the main goal will be promoting to the public uh, this, the similar line that people would have heard a lot before in, in vegan advocacy circles of why love one but eat the other, which I guess is everyone's first introduction to speciesism uh, or the easiest one to comprehend. And is there a dress code, a colour people should wear or particular placards? Is there places where they can download um, uh, signage or placards if they would like to um, bring that along as well? Yes, yeah, so people are welcome to create their own banners and placards um, and that would be great. Uh, we, we, we will be checking um, them in Treasury Gardens just to make sure that there's nothing offensive because it'll be a family-friendly event. Um, but there'll also be some signs and placards that people can hold that we'll provide as well. We'll provide as many as we can. And we're also hoping for people to wear white or as close to white or as much white as possible. Uh, we can't reveal too much about the white theme at the moment, but, um, yeah, if everyone can do that, we're hoping it'll be a good impact and um, have, have a good impact visually as well. Great. Um, I'm really looking forward to the march. So let's just recap on the details. It's next Saturday? Yes, yeah, so Saturday the 26th. It's from 11 o'clock in the morning and we're hoping for everyone to meet at Treasury Gardens uh, wearing white or as much white as possible, uh, bringing along some signs or placards if you can, but if you can't, not a, not a problem. And we're going to be marching to Parliament Steps and then to Burke Street Mall. We're going to have a few speakers, some other events that are a bit of a surprise on the day. And if you want more information, please go to the Facebook event page, which is Melbourne-March for the End of Speciesism. March for the end of speciesism. March for the end of speciesism. The time has come for emancipation. We want animal liberation. March for the end of speciesism. Thanks to Trevor Whedon, who we just heard from, an organiser of the Melbourne March for the End of Speciesism. Also on today's show, we heard from Dr Ash Narati, who will be one of the speakers at the march. 
We also heard from US-based academic and activist Paul York and a big thanks again to Voiceless, the Animal Protection Institute, who are based in Sydney, for giving us permission to broadcast part of their Rethinking Speciesism seminar series. We heard part of the presentation from Dr Brock Bastian and he was discussing the meat paradox, how we can love some animals and eat others. Remember, you can contact the Freedom of Species team by email, info at freedomofspecies.org. You can also message us via our Facebook page. All podcasts are available from the Freedom of Species website and you can subscribe to the program via iTunes. Out-of-towners can live stream from the 3CR website. So thanks for joining us today. We're going to go out with a tune from a band, I don't know how to pronounce their name, but it's True Nature with an XX either side of their name. I don't know if that's silent or not, but the tune is called One Species and I believe it will be performed at the march on Saturday by local musicians. So it um, be great for everyone to get along. Remember to wear white. I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's going to be the biggest yet. Stay tuned to 3CR because after us we've got Nick presenting Encyclodelia. It's a show talking about harm reduction and drug law reform. That's coming up next. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.